Hello and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Benjamin and this is my co-host Joey. Hey, how's it going? And today we're talking about Avatar The Way of Water. The way of water connects all things. Before your birth and after your death. This is our home! I need you with me. And I need you to be strong. This is an epic action sci-fi family James Cameron sequel. Directed by James Cameron. The cast includes Grace Augustine Squared, Blue Gamora, Jim Fitzgerald, Rose, the blind man that kills people, not Hobbs nor Shaw, but Jonah, and A Flight of the Concord. I watched this movie in the theaters in 2D. Joey, how did you watch it? I also experienced this in 2D, in theaters, with lots of other people. How many people were in your theater? Was there a lot of people? Almost the entire theater was full, but there was, there was a few empty seats. What yeah. about you? When I was buying my tickets early, I saw there was only a couple of seats left. And um, I don't know if it was completely full, but it seemed that way when I was in there. Yeah. Which is, you know, this is the type of movie that would get people back into the theaters. Although... I'm becoming less and less of a fan of going to the theaters. Uh, like the crying Navi r- sound effects were so realistic until mm. I realized it was an actual baby that someone had brought to watch a three hour long movie. <laughs> a three hour long PG 13 movie. I mean, what's <laughs> going to keep you at home? You know, yeah, I only ha- I can either see Avatar or I can, um, you know, get a babysitter. Like I can't do both of those things. <laughs> uh, yeah. Did, did you consider seeing it in 3D though? I did consider it, but then I was like, you know what? <laughs> I don't know if I want my head to hurt. Um, so I, I decided I, w- I would go against it just because I didn't want to spend the extra money. I Yeah, the extra money. And also, yeah, I just have never had a good time with 3D. Maybe the, the technology has changed, but I'll wait till somebody tells me that it's better before putting myself through that again, especially for a movie that is three hours long. Uh, yep. But before we get into some actual analysis of this film, we'll begin by recapping the events in it in a synopsis that Joey wrote straight off the dome immediately after coming out of the movie theater. So That's right. I came home, I went, <laughs> and I went straight to the laptop, and it said, here's what happened in this movie. So let's, uh, let's hear it. After the humans, or sky people, as they're known to the Na'vi, leave the lush, rich world of Pandora, Jake, Sully, and Natiri have five children. Three of them are born the normal way, one of them is a result of Grace Augustine's immaculate conception, and one is a human that was left behind when the others left. They live a happy life in the forest, learning the ways of the world and how to be a family. But all that changed when the sky people return. Tens of ships arrive on Pandora, this time not just to mine for resources, but to set up a permanent colony here. Earth is dying, and Pandora is looking mighty ripe for Earth 2. One year into the occupation, Jake and his tribe are hunting the humans that dare leave the settlement. They attack trains and support lines, hoping to weaken them enough that they leave the planet. Around this time, a new batch of avatars has hatched. These are clone hybrids of some of the military personnel that were on Pandora during the first expedition. Included in that group is Colonel Quaritch. 
his Navi avatar clone has downloaded his previous version's memories and his personality. He and the other Marines are ruthless and relentless, and they have only one job. Kill Jake Sully. Jake and Natiri's kids get captured by Korich and the Avatar Marines. With their parents' help, most of them escape, but Spider, the human that was adopted by the Navi, is taken hostage. Jake is terrified that Korich and his crew will kill his family, so he convinces them to flee. They fly across the ocean to seek refuge with the Water Tribes. These are Navi, but of a different race. Their skin is a lighter ocean blue. They have blue eyes and strong tails. Instead of swinging from vines and traversing the forest, these Navi are one with the ocean. They ride little plesiosaurs and flying alligators. Jake, Natiri, and their kids struggle to be accepted by the water tribe. At first, they are all pretty poor swimmers and divers, but they soon adapt and become just as good as any of the water-based Navi. Kiri, Jake's adopted daughter who was born spontaneously from Grace Augustine's avatar, seems to have a deeper connection with the ocean creatures than any of the other Na'vi. The kids from the Water Tribe make fun of her, and it leads to her brothers and the Water Kids getting into a fistfight. Tensions escalate between Jake's kids and the Water Tribe teens. This leads to Loke, the youngest of Jake's boys, being left far outside the tribe's reef and in danger from big-ass Navi-eating fish. Loke is saved by a passing Tukun. Tukun are intelligent whales that have an emotionally symbiotic relationship with the Water Navi. This Tukun is called Payakan and he has been an outcast from his whale tribe for violating their strict pacifist code. Kiri interfaces with Ewa to speak with her mother, but this causes her to have a seizure. Jake calls Norman Max to help her, and they arrive in a helicopter that Korich and his avatar marines track. The bad guys begin burning down villages to find their prey. Spider is forced to translate for the big blue meanies, but is helpless against the destruction they are waging. Eventually, Korich decides to enlist the help of a whaling vessel, or I guess a tukuning vessel, because they hunt tukun. These intelligent whales have some sort of brain chemical that can be used to stop the aging process in humans, and it's super valuable. Quaritch, after learning of the connection between Tukun and the water Navi, orders they kill one close to the tribes to draw Jake out. The plan works. Jake's new tribe is pissed and wants to kill the humans, but Jake tries to tell them they should leave. But Jake's kids are already out there in the danger zone. Loke went off to warn Payakan, his whale friend, but he's too late. Payakan has been hit with a tracking beacon, and the humans are on their way. They radio Dad to help, and Jake rallies the warriors and their flying alligators and skedaddles out of there. It's a showdown. Jake's kids are tied up on the deck of the Tukuning ship, with Quaritch and his avatar goon strutting around arrogantly. All of the water warriors are present, with Jake in front, ready to give himself over in order to save his kids. But then, Paya Khan, the whale friend, charges the ship, bursting from the water and landing on top of it. He is flattening mech suits with his fins, destroying cranes with his tail, and deflecting harpoons with his head. Jake and the rest of the water warriors charge in and chaos begins. The Navi quickly gain the upper hand. 
with Neytiri swooping down from above, the flying alligators diving to avoid bullets, Spider damaging the Tulkuning ship's controls, and Payakan outmaneuvering harpoons. The whole thing is a mess for the humans. They are either flung into the air, shot with arrows, or have their arms ripped off. Only Korich's avatar squad survives the initial barrage. There is a confusing amount of tying kids up, other kids coming to save them, and some of them getting captured before they can escape. But as darkness falls, so does one of Jake's kids. His oldest son was shot while trying to rescue Spider, and he dies in his father's arms. Jake rallies Natiri and his family. They are going back to save the kids that are still captured, and to face down Korich once and for all. After taking out basically everyone who was left, we are left in a strange standoff. Quaritch has Kiri with a knife to her throat, and Natiri has a knife to Spider's throat. Did I mention that Spider is human Quaritch's son? It's not important? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Quaritch drops his weapon, and the kids and Natiri escape. Jake and Quaritch fight to the death. Jake chokes out Quaritch underwater, but gets wounded in the process. The entire ship has capsized and is slowly filling with water. Three daring escapes are necessary. Kiri uses her animal connections to save her mother and her youngest sister. Loke guides his father out of the ship with a boost from Payakan, and Spider rescues Korich. Back on land, Korich asks the boy to join him, but Spider just hisses at him and runs back to be a part of Jake's family. The family mourns the loss of the eldest son, but vow to move on stronger. Jake realizes that he can't run from his problems. He needs to stand and fight. The end. There you have it. Three hours of movie condensed into a very manageable amount of words written down on our script. Uh, We'll begin our analysis (laughs) of this movie uh, by going over our pros and cons. Joey, what did you like about Avatar The Way of Water? Pandora shines again. Even better effects, even more breathtaking vistas. It's a James, and it's a James Cameron sequel. It's got all of the little hallmarks of, you know, rhyming, you know, bits from the first part that come back to the second part. Good stuff. A really epic climax. This movie is basically Titan if if if, uh, if Avatar was Aliens 2, then this is Titanic 2. Uh <laughs> Wait a second, what? Wouldn't this be Avatar 2? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's definitely Titanic 2. He's making he's like, what if we made what if Titanic was an action movie? That's what this movie is. Um a story that a story that has themes that challenge you. Uh I love Korich's return. Um and this movie is really violent. <laughs> They're killing kids. Other kids have blood on their hands. People are are twitching while they're drowning. The, the avatars are getting shot in the head. It's crazy out there. Totally. I uh that's one of the things I really liked about it. Um I I think this movie looks amazing. This is while well, we I, I complain a little bit about like the in theater experience. The pros outweigh the cons in that sense. It was awesome to see this movie on a big screen. It looked amazing. It definitely brought me back to that feeling that I felt when I saw Avatar 1 in theaters. It just was something to behold in an actual theater. So that was cool. Uh, So much badass action. This movie definitely delivers on that aspect. Uh, I enjoyed getting to know the Water Tribe. Again, it's James Cameron's sequel, so you're going to get things that were great in the first movie kind of reinvented and done again in the second movie, and getting to know the Water Tribe felt a lot like getting to know uh, the like Jungle Tribe uh, from the yeah. first one, so that was really cool. Like you said, classic James Cameron sequel stuff. 
you know, including making the movie longer <laughs> and also uh, <laughs> than, than the original one and also just reusing a lot of things that worked in the first one, but having them happen to new characters and bringing in uh, additional things. And we'll talk about that as well. So love that. Uh, family values i i liked that they kind of pushed this thing i get that's kind of a james cameron thing as well to bring in the family aspect for the sequel loved that and uh like you said they turned the violence meter way way up i i actually i don't really check what movies are rated anymore because like i'm not it's gonna not gonna stop me if i'm gonna go see it but when sure. i walked out of this one i was like was that pg-13 or r because there are some they're really pushing the envelope a little bit with some of the you know violence uh but yeah all good stuff but let's talk about what we didn't like. Joey, what are your cons for Avatar The Way of Water? Unfortunately, I think it falls into the same trap that many sequels do, which is that it's trying to do too much. Um, the movie is freaking long, uh, and one of my biggest cons is Jack Champion, who plays Spider. Dude, yeah, I'm so <laughs> relieved to see that on your cons, because that was like the <laughs> biggest distraction for me. He was bad. <laughs> <laughs> he's so bad but i mean like maybe he doesn't have anyone to work with because he's like i guess everyone else's motion capture <laughs> suits or whatever all their faces can be edited in post so he's just up there going what oh <laughs> oh <laughs> uh, uh, i'm supposed to believe this guy wild. is feral the way he was like throwing the <laughs> chair against the, the the one way or the two-way mirror or whatever was so fake so acted like he was like trying not to break the walls he it's just and that's just one example i don't want to get fixed on that there's so much to this guy's performance that just made me roll my eyes yeah that's unfortunate um it doesn't i don't feel like it has the same emotional weight that the last one did i think that uh, the victory in this one is not as complete um so i think that doesn't resonate quite as well with me um what lesson is jake sully learning this time that he didn't learn the first time exactly um, I actually, I don't know, I've, I've been thinking about this. I think maybe I've changed my mind slightly on this, but I think there's something worth pointing out. And uh, there's not enough Natiri. Uh, she is the like heart central part of the first movie. She's kind of relegated to being um, sort of a, a Jiminy Cricket sort of moral compass in the background. Not really a, a big character. Uh, a lot of that space that was taken up for her is given to her kids instead. Um, so I would appreciate it a little bit more from her that's all but you yeah i agree with all of that um i think this movie is suffering from success uh in the form of knowing that it's going to have sequels so it's 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 built like a sequel uh which and not in the sense that it's the second of a movie it's a sequel that's setting up another sequel and potentially another sequel and while there's definitely worse examples of movies that basically nothing happens in it's all set up this movie doesn't do that it's just not as gratifying as the first movie where it was a totally standalone story where you had this kind of uh finality to the to the end of the movie this one is like yeah clearly you're not done yet and Mm -hmm. it it, which is a disappointing feeling after sitting down for three hours Uh, i i thought that the climax was was a little bit overwhelming and a little bit busy uh, especially when it's like three different underwater escapes happening at the same time that are kind of like running parallel and they're all independent to each other. It was just, I don't know. I didn't love that. Uh, And then, like I just said, this movie is long. It's probably too long. Uh, It, it, I feel two ways about that because I think this movie really is like the first one loves to give you the time to just be on Pandora. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that necessarily, but 
it is tough to sit through a three-hour movie with no breaks. I got it. I had to take a bathroom break during this one. I was I was ready. I, I mean, I went in there. I was a little. I went there. I think my showing was at seven o'clock, so I um I didn't have too much to drink beforehand and everything. I was pretty much good. Uh, so but yeah, it was tough. My I mean, my ass hurt after I, <laughs> I like I had a, like a bruise on my tailbone from sitting there for so long. Yeah, and, and maybe says something about AMC's chairs. But um. I also went to an AMC theater, but I saw a lot of people get up to use the bathroom, and I had no qualms with their decision yeah. to do so uh, because the movie is so long. Uh, but those are our pros and our cons. Let's get into our analysis with an with our overall section. Uh, Joey, take it away. So before I talk about kind of um i guess the the feeling of this movie or anything i want to talk a little bit about scale here about what it took to make this movie usually we save this for our cool easter eggs but i feel like it's important to kind of set the stage here for what we were basically all experiencing um so first of all all of the actors were actually in water when they were filming this movie and um this is significant because usually it's like i think it's called dry to wet uh performance where you that you're hung by wires and pretending you're underwater and then like put you digitally underwater in this case they put you they filmed you while you're underwater and then they digitally removed the water and put in different uh, cgi water so (laughs) (laughs) it's a lot of water and everyone's actually like under like the surface and uh, while they're doing this and so Um, i saw some interesting stuff about this were they just holding their breath while they filmed this stuff they were filming holding their breath incredible Jane and Kate Winslet, uh, Academy Award winning James, Kate Winslet, holds the record among the crew for the longest free dive with seven minutes and 14 seconds. And she basically learned all of that while filming this movie. That's uh, unbelievable. I read so, that and I was yeah. like, oh, I, I must be misunderstanding. There's no way that she just held her breath that long. But she really yes. did that. Yes. And for, while she was filming a movie. And then um, Zoe Saldana, she was up to five minutes or something. She said she was teaching her kids how to do it, too. Um, they had some of the best, you know, people like divers in the world working on this. Um, and of course, James Cameron is obsessed with water. He's like a free diver. His own. He's he built a sub to explore the Mariana, the Mariana Trench, like just because <laughs> he wanted to. It's crazy. Um, so the tank that they were filming this in was 32 feet deep and held around 90,000 gallons, which, by contrast, the seawater tank constructed for the Titanic contained 17 million gallons. So this is not just twice as big or three times as big. This is, this is like five, six, or t- six times as big as t- t- Titanic's uh, tank. Um, pretty amazing. Uh, so Weta FX, which is the production company that J- uh, Peter Jackson founded that's based in, the, uh, in New Zealand, uh, helped film for the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and all of that. This is the largest uh, visual effects project they've ever worked on. Um, only two shots in the entire film contain no visual effects. Wow. <laughs> uh, they said that they invented 57 new species <laughs> for the film. <laughs> that actually makes sense because there, yeah. there was a crazy amount going on underneath the water. Yes, and I mean, you see how many different species, like different animals and stuff that appear. I mean, you see a lot of the same ones while they're in the forest that you see in the first one, but in this I, I, one... Uh, I actually, yeah, because when that happened, it made me be like, dang, I guess there really aren't that, like, Pandora's not really that, that biodiverse, because <laughs> it's the same animals again. <laughs> no, they're just the most common ones. Oh, uh, and then the, this, this really blew my mind. So there was also considerable horsepower required for this, so... It took about two weeks um, for them to simulate just the movement of water. And I think this was 
uh, specifically the shot where Jack Champion comes out of the water next to a bunch of avatars that are also coming out of the water. They all have to look wet, but they also have to look wet differently, and they also have to look, look, make sure it doesn't look weird that they're wet and whatever. Um, but th- th- there was millions of processor hours to required to render the graphics for this movie. The total amount of data stored for this film was 18.5 petabytes, while... <laughs> Avatar required one petabyte. Wow. Which is still ridiculous. A, a, a petabyte is what? A thousand terabytes? Are we, really, are we really getting to that point? <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Oh my God. I mean, like our entire podcast catalog, just the raw like audio fits on um, like a, a third, I think, of my one terabyte drive. Like it's... It's insane. And we've been doing this for four yeah, years. Yeah, we've been really audio. cranking them out. <laughs> like, this is insane. This is the insane amount of, of data that they're processing. Anyway, so this movie is uh, is working with some of the like the top talent and the, the greatest visual effects ever conceived of. Um, and it's all centered to b- bring us the complete world of Pandora. And yeah, Pandora, I feel like, feels real. Uh, it is one. It is so amazing to see it. As soon as like the, the you know the the titles start and uh, it fades in, you see the floating mountains and the waterfalls falling down and dissipating. It's like oh my gosh, we're back here again. I can't believe it. I I can't believe it's been so long and yet it, here it is right in front of me. Um, everything in the water looks amazing. Every new creature is stunning and contains incredible detail. The expansion to the sea navi, as you mentioned, is such a brilliant idea. They look slightly different. They're similar but distinct in a way that's just really wonderful. Um, I was sad when they were leaving the jungle, but then when they when they got to the water, I'm like, oh wait, we're starting over with a whole newest place. This is awesome. So it was just as rich and and completely new as uh, just like the first one. It was pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, Pandora is an experience that you have to watch on the big screen. It was it was truly awesome in an age where we have great special effects in almost every blockbuster movie. It's rare to find something that we can truly gawk at. But Avatar <laughs> two delivers uh, on that aspect. Uh, like part of the reason why this movie is so long, like I was saying before, is because it takes the time to allow you to appreciate the beauty of the world of Pandora. And and honestly, it's so worth it. Uh, like seeing this movie in the theater was just, I, I don't know. It, it was uh, like, I feel two ways about this movie because it's like, one thing is like when you sit and think about what this movie has in it and you, like you start looking at the storytelling and you know, every, all the parts of the plot and all that stuff, that's one thing to consider. But then the other is the actual experience of just being there and like getting to experience it in all of its majesty. Uh, like I, no matter how, like I don't regret seeing this movie in the theater because the experience alone is something that will stay with me. Yes, definitely. I mean, this is definitely a theater movie if there's ever been one, you know, and it, it really is. Uh, it really is incredible. Just how much, <laughs> like how much there is in it, you know, uh, I, and it sort of like starts to lose its effect over time because we're so used to seeing like animated shows that use a lot of detail and, and imagination. But for all of it to kind of constantly be set in this quote unquote real world that look, looks photorealistic is pretty amazing. And a lot of that just kind of fades away when you're sucked into the story and and you're doing that. I think the first movie... Avatar, I, I think, felt rushed. It felt like there's a lot of things that we're just kind of getting to. This one doesn't feel that way at all. It feels like a three-hour movie. It, th- it feels like it's taking its time, letting it linger on things. 
Um, and uh, I, I mean, I think you can take that or leave it uh, one way or the other. But uh, for a movie that's putting this much effort into showing you something amazing, um, I think you can make a really good case that that's worth it. Yeah, like again, we'll get into like you know more of what we liked and didn't like. But I've been telling people it's like you should just go see it, just experience <laughs> this. This is awesome. It really is. Um, one of the other things I really love about this movie is the Tolkien. Uh, I don't know how you say this word. Tolkien. I've seen the movie and they say it a bunch of times. <laughs> it's spelled differently than I think it's pronounced. I love the Tolkien and their relationship with the Navi. It feels very alien. But it ties together with what we've already seen and understand about the Navi. They are one with their environment. So it makes sense they have peers from a vastly different species. Um, Really creative choice. And I didn't expect that to be such a central part of the movie. But I'm really happy that that was something that was really focused on and expanded in such an interesting way. Yeah, I totally agree. Super memorable. It's different enough to feel alien, but also like similar enough that it's like, it's not too hard to be like, ah, they're basically whales. Right. It's, it's conceptually easy to, to wrap your mind around, but like it's something that would never happen in your real life. <laughs> right, right. You know? So uh, let's talk a little bit about like what this movie fails at. Um, because I think from a story perspective, I agree with a lot of the other reviewers that this is short on story. It's thin on story, big on spectacle and action, deep on theme and message, but the story I feel like leaves a lot to be desired. And I'm really glad that we don't really give ratings or recommendations on this podcast because I'm going to complain about this movie a lot, but I still feel like I really liked it. So I guess it's up to you, listener, to decide what that means to you. Um, I think it's likely that Avatar The Way of Water will marinate for a long time, and perhaps we will see it as a touch point in our cultural memory, the way that I see the first one. But I walked away without a sense of dumbstruck awe and with a sore ass because I was seeing a movie for three or four hours. Um, it was, you know, I, I, when I was, when I, I remember leaving uh, Avatar the first time and not being blown away by the story or anything, but just the world of Pandora. And I kept returning to it in my mind, thinking about it and, and just mulling it over and feeling that, that sense of like, it was so close like that I could touch it, but it wasn't quite within reach. Um, and I didn't really quite get the same sense here. Maybe my, my expectations were, were, or, uh, you know, dampened a little bit but i think that um the water stuff looks amazing but it didn't quite capture that same feeling for me as the first one did i think you probably feel differently i don't know it's um i think the expectations are going to be tough to match anyways right yes um and i think i I don't know i still was awestruck uh, by the underwater in fact that's when i needed to go to the bathroom was right when they got to the water village i was like i can't go now uh even though all the water was making me have to pee even more but uh it, it like that was the the part of the movie where i was like oh this feels like the first time that i got to see the jungle on pandora again yeah no uh, i definitely understand that yeah i do think that it's impossible to separate this movie from the hype and although there are lots to like about it i think this movie misses the mark in terms of the overall avatar strategy at least the way that i would conceptualize it for me i think there's two routes that this movie could have gone that it doesn't take um either you defeat the bad guys completely or this movie is a setup for the unbelievable comeback in the third movie right i'm thinking this movie should be empire strikes back right or a more recent example um avengers infinity war right the bad guys win we see the return of the humans. They're more ruthless. Uh, they have better weapons than before, better technology. Uh, Qualrich is back. He's 
just as cruel. He's bigger and bluer. Um, and he totally, you know, kicks Jake, Jake Sully's ass. And it's like, it's the forest is born, burning. The, uh, the whales are dead. What are they going to do? How are they ever going to get back from this? You know, uh, have this like, uh, this deep cut ending. And you, you get some of that. There's certainly things that, bad things that happen, but it's still definitely a victory for our heroes. And Colrich is certainly set back. The humans are set back a little bit, but it's not, it's not nearly as complete of a victory as the first one is either. They're still around. They seem to be like setting up their permanent camp pretty um, without too much trouble. Uh, now that Jake is no longer investing up their supply lines, they seem to be uh, doing just fine. So It feels like this was a, they won the battle, but the war is barely even begun. You know, yeah. this feels like a pretty small scale conflict in the big picture that we know that the humans are going to come colonize all of Pandora. And, and I felt like even though the like the climactic battle was really epic, it felt a little bit hollow after I saw that. Well, after we saw Quaritch not die, because yes. what was all this for? I know that we lost his son, and like Avatar One was not afraid to kill characters with names, so I appreciate that. But I was disappointed that, like, at the end, not that much happened besides destroying this big boat, and uh, like Quaritch can't even be killed by choking him underwater. Uh, it was <laughs> like I, I was just kind of disappointed by by that aspect of it. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think I really like Quaritch as a character. I'm glad they brought him back. I think that's really cool. I'm gonna talk a little bit more about that in a second. I feel like Avatar Two sort of plods along, adding whole new sections to the vast tapestry of Pandora, but coloring in only a little. It's all set up, and I think that's kind of the, the most disappointing thing. Um, but like you said, it's not as bad as other ones, but still, it, it definitely suffers from the same feeling, the same like sequel cinematic universe like blot that I feel like we've, we've seen so much. And even like, this is the thing, like even the Marvel movies, right? Each of them stand on their own, and a lot of them separate themselves from the rest of the MCU and tell a singular story about a single person, you know, overcoming something, defeating one villain, and then that victory is done, right? And maybe there's callbacks to it, uh, references to it, but um, the the like the main storyline with all the characters are is advanced very slowly, very methodically, and um, all, each individual aspect of it is just uh, kind of spice around the sides. But they're all complete stories; they're all finished. You know, you can watch any one of them on its own and get the idea of what's going on. Um, but this one, it feels like we're just setting up for the next one. And, you know, if, if you're going to have to make me watch six hours of Avatar in a row, uh, you know, you're asking for a lot more than you were before. <laughs> <laughs> I think, okay, so I, I think it's interesting to compare this to the other James Cameron sequels that we watched on this program. In Aliens, the threat level is raised from Alien, right? There's more aliens now. Uh, they're on the planet. But the, and the victory is total. No more aliens. No, the alien queen is dead too. Uh, LV426 has been wiped out from aliens. Obviously, that franchise continued, right? But without Cameron at the helm, it sort of just flails about. If you ask me, that franchise ended after aliens. That's, I think that's canonically yeah, you, the conclusion. You are living in a fantasy world that <laughs> I think we all wish we could live in. Um, in T2, Judgment Day, Terminator 2, the threat level is raised. The Terminator is, is, bigger he's badder you know he's 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 much scarier um but the victory is also complete uh skybot skynet's bot isn't just taken out 
right? Skynet's predecessors are destroyed. The movie leaves us with the message that they prevented the Judgment Day. Um, and obviously that franchise continued, but without James Cameron at the helm, it sort of flails about. <laughs> yep, uh, same position. That <laughs> franchise also ended there. So, I mean, what's going on here exactly? And, and I, I don't know if I want to sign up for like Avatar uh, 1.5 exactly. You know, without significant victories, without having our heroes lose, why should we believe this is going anywhere? But instead, Cameron sort of furthers, deepers in on our characters. It's not the choice I would have made or expected, but perhaps this is the best way to explore something so vast like Pandora. Um, and I mean, it's going to take over a half a century to make this entire <laughs> franchise. So maybe this is the way to do it, but let's, let's talk a little bit about Jake Sully and his arc. So Jake is terrified of losing his family and rightfully so they are always getting into some sort of trouble. He runs into, he runs from his problems, hoping they won't find him or chase him, but they always do. And they always will. The only solution is to stand and fight for the audience. This feels like a very clear call to action. Uh, we cannot let others dictate how we will live our lives, nor can we simply stand by while evil seeks to destroy us and everything we care about. But it's frustrating because Jake seems to already know this. He said as much in the first Avatar, and I have a quote. To give you a heads up. If Grace is with you, look into our memories. See the world we come from. There's no green there. They killed their mother. And they're gonna do the same here. More sky people are gonna come. They're gonna come like a rain that never ends. Unless we stop them. More sky people are gonna come. They're gonna come like a rain that never ends. Unless we stop them. But, you know, uh, I, I read this some uh, interviews with Sam Worthington and James Cameron. And his James Cameron's point here was that having a family changes you. He's got a lot more to lose now. A lot of the space where this idea is explored is tied up in Jake's family life. He's a tough father. He runs his family like a military troop. His kids call him sir, and he talks to them like he's a drill sergeant. And here he sort of takes a backseat, offering criticism, but never directly contradicting Jake. This is weird to me because Natiri should be the head of the household. She has the bloodline for power in their village. And the Na'vi are shown to be an egalitarian society with a patriarch and a matriarch co-running the community. When Jake and co move in with the sea people, he says convincing the patriarch isn't the part that actually matters. It will be his wife that will determine whether the refugee family can stay in the sea people's village. So why is Jake running things here? Why isn't he listening to his wife? Natiri is basic. Materi is basically reduced to telling Jake he should stand and fight over and over, but she always def de defers to him, even though he's so obviously wrong. Yeah, and like I know they're taking a more like family first approach to this movie, and as you have to do in a James Cameron sequel, you have to just right. you have to bring the family aspect into it. But the the Navi, or at least the ones that live in the uh, uh, the forest, which is the Amatakaya, yes, uh, I think is what they're called. Th they were kind of shown to be like we're all family type deal where it's like everybody puts their hands on each other everybody is kind of like swaying around it like at the tree it was interesting to see them kind of like section off and be like my family is just these people and like we're leaving <laughs> you know like not that they're like oh our chief totally just 
deserted us here in right. the in the jungle. That to me felt like pretty pretty strange, pretty out of character. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I mean, something, something it is sort of contradictory to what we saw before. But I mean, we're getting into the sort of nuance of what this dynamic looks like, right? From the original Avatar's perspective, we were looking at the Navi as sort of a monolith that beyond like the people at the at the top of the hierarchy, right? The right. chief and the the chief mother and uh, you know whoever else, Natiri and her brother, right? All of them are um, uh, kind of distinct, but everyone else is sort of just there. Um, now we kind of get a little bit more deeper into it. Maybe there are individual family structures within this, but it does feel very. It feels very much like a human uh, um, analog here, and I think that's part of what this story is really about. Right, is trying to use the Navi and the humans as metaphors for how you should be, or what what how you should act, or how you might act in a situation that's similar to this. I think that's something that's really brilliant about Cameron and something that he does so well is this is a wild story, right? There's clones, there's talking whales, immortality, (laughs) brain juice, divine intervention. But at the core, where our most potent theme is explored, it's a story that we know by heart. Um, It's a family who is trying to figure out how to get by and how to survive. Parents who are worried about their children have great hopes for them. The conversations Jake, Natiri, and their kids have are not different than conversations real families have every day. It's Cameron saying, no matter how much the world changes or how much you change, there will always be this dynamic between parents and children. It's, and just as having children changes you, so does losing one, right? Uh, I think that narrowing, it on, in, narrowing in on that, I think, is pretty amazing, especially to isolate them and then have them they kind of come to terms with this, right? Telling a refugee story like this uh, where someone's trying to assimilate into uh, their society and having trouble doing that um, is something that I think may be more and more relevant as we as climate change uh, wrecks our world. So it's something that, uh, I don't know, it, I'm sort of conflicted on because it's like, at first I'm like, oh, Jake, didn't you know this from before? But then you have to consider that a lot of time has passed and th- things have changed for Jake. He's not the reckless person he used to be. Now he has so much to worry about, so much to care for. Um, so it, it, it's, it's interesting, especially interesting because this, these moments rhyme so perfectly with the first one. He is, he spends, um, almost the exact same moment in the, uh, second movie. Uh, he is trying to convince the tribe that he has assimilated with that they should leave their home. The same thing he's doing, um, in the very first movie, he's, uh, right near the climax of the movie. He says, you guys are in danger. And you guys need to leave. And they're all like, uh, no, <laughs> you're crazy. You don't know anything about this. And he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. It's like, uh, what, what, it's like for me, watch, yeah, for me, I was like, uh, what's happening here? What, what is Jake, uh, doing here? Because he doesn't seem to recognize that he's falling into the same path again, not recognizing that that, that line of attack or that strategy is not going to work. Um, and I think that, uh, undercutting that at the end right where he has to turn and fight and he stays and fights and then decides that he's going to stand and fight uh is is good and i hope that that sticks with it but um uh, whatever progress we've made in this movie uh i feel skeptical that we're going to keep it in the next one is all i'm trying to say right avatar 3 will also be him having to join a community he's unfamiliar with telling them to run away and in the end having to turn and fight anyways because that's the avatar formula (laughs) (laughs) exactly 
Which that is something I've heard people say about this movie is that it's kind of the same movie again. And I think that's true in a certain extent, but it's the same way that, you know, aliens is alien and T2 is Terminator. It's like, yes, it is. But it's also it. I like that you've been saying it rhymes because uh, it, it's like using those same things that worked, but kind of reworking them for something fresh. Uh, so like I, I don't have any problem with uh, those similarities uh, in this one. And, and something that I think is actually pretty different by having Jake have children, we have supporting characters. If, if you don't want to call them supporting characters, if anything, they're the main characters that we actually care about. I yes. was kind of blown away or not blown away, but like I was, I was impressed with their movie's ability to get us to know all the different children. Uh, don't let the fact that I, I can barely remember their names fool you. Uh, I was very, you know, attached to these kids uh, by the end of the movie. I did feel like the movie kind of rushed through introducing them to us at the very beginning because it's like, uh, yeah, so I have three kids uh, that are normal, like births and then immaculate conception over here. And then also the human kid. And it's like, who we treat as a cat, like a cat. He's He's, like a feral cat. Yeah, he's like a cat. He is a human, but we call him spider. (laughs) (laughs) But by the end of the movie, I I knew all of those characters, which and, and I felt the loss of the eldest son even though I felt like I knew him the least Uh, it's like in retrospect, they were clearly setting him up to die. Uh, But, (laughs) but they, that was something that they massively improved on, uh, which, you know, is another trademark of the James Cameron sequel formula is that you fix some of the stuff that you didn't get right the first time. Yes. I think I agree completely. I think all the kids are distinct. I think it's obvious what their personalities are. Um, They, uh, they may not be super complicated necessarily, but, I think this movie is almost like an ensemble movie with the number of people that are playing central roles in the plot. And, um, you know, Jake is sort of at the top here, right? He's the main decision maker, but a lot of the stuff that happens is driven by his children. And there's a lot of time just spent with them trying to figure out like their, how they're going to fit into this and, uh, seeing them be teenagers essentially. So that's, um, I think that's to the movie's credit. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, it, it's got so much, like, even down to, like, specific details that are kind of, you know, rhyme with the first movie, because you've got the younger son who is, like, in love or catches the eye of, like, the princess or whatever of the other yes. tribe, and then you've also got him doing something that's, like, impressive, connecting with the whale, kind of like how Jake was able to become uh Torak Torak Moktau. And then you also, it was almost shot for shot the way that the younger son is fighting with that big fish and he's like hiding in the coral and it's biting, like trying to get in between the coral, just like Jake hiding from like that panther looking thing in the first movie when he's hiding in the like roots of the tree and it's not able to bite through down to using the weapon in his hand, like shooting at it, but then it bites the weapon and takes it away from him. Like it was exactly (laughs) the same. And like, you can look at that as kind of like the member berries kind of uh, uh, criticism that South Park had. It's like, member Millennium Falcon, member R2-D2, like member this thing from 10 years ago. But I thought that that was just like really creatively done. I thought I, that was different enough. You'd only catch it, I think, if you recently saw Avatar. Uh, so I thought I thought that was really well done. 
Yeah, definitely. And this is the this is James Cameron's signature, right? Just like we said before, like they he's telling the same story, but like it's bigger. It's it's uh, you know there's a lot more at stake. Usually, this one I feel like is not quite the same for that. Um, but there's he takes aspects from the first movie and then reuses them, um, but does it in a way that's different enough that it doesn't feel like it's just doing the same thing twice, right? It's it's actually expanding on it and making it into something that you want to pay attention to. Um, it's impressive filmmaking, honestly, to to recognize that and put it and be able to put it into your movie in a seamless way and for it to work each time. And it makes it feel like you're really telling something that matters and something that uh, matters to you. Um, OK, so one of my f- favorite uh, aspects of this movie is the rebirth of Coleridge. Um, he says that as a Marine, they are reborn in hell in the bodies of their enemies. It's a really cool line, um, but it's <laughs> it's telling toward the human project. With unlimited resources and a dying plan to escape, the humans can throw anything and everything at their problems. Coleridge's rebirth is very Terminator-like. He's better suited to his environment, more powerful and more deadly. I only wish they had killed him off so he could be reborn a third time. Let's do a, a Nebula and Gamora thing with him. That would be badass. You know, like every time he dies, they like they like put more genetic like mutations in him, so he's like like become some sort of like abomination. Um, and he, like bef- like he's just or he has like some sort of cybernetic implants or something. Every time he's killed, he comes back like different and weirder and stronger than before and like more twisted. Yes, um, and then yeah. like disgusted with the inferior version of him that came before him. That's right. That's, that would be awesome. That's why I'm so disappointed they didn't kill him. Like it's right there. <laughs> I know. Especially uh, so because just like, he's yeah. so good. I, he was one of the best parts of Avatar 1. So having him again was awesome. Finding a creative sci-fi reason for him to still be in the movie, awesome. Like all that stuff. And he was still had that kind of charisma that he had in the last one, just being completely ruthless, but also being like so military about it. I, I loved it. Uh, but I know we. I, I was as I was watching. I'm like, this is what James Cameron has been leading toward. This is why he made this movie, so he could have Navi space marines. <laughs> yes, and it makes so much sense that that's how they would do it too. It's like now the yes. Navi, who we've seen as the good guys visibly, uh, now suddenly turned into like part of the opposition. It's so. It's like it, it paints humanity in these movies as like such a weird and demonic force that like they like everything that they do on on um on pandora is like inside of something else right they are inside of mech suits they're inside those little crab guys they're inside the shuttles or whatever <laughs> they're they're like there's a whole bunch of them inside those big ships and the helicopters right the humans use technology to to like mimic the uh world that they are invading and they are doing the same thing here with the avatars. Like they're in, like those are humans. They're in there. They have the human mindset, but they look like Navi. And like as time goes on, they're going to look more and more and act more and more like Navi and uh, like assimilate more of their culture and and then use it to destroy the culture that they are uh, like assimilating. Amazing stuff. It's it's such a uh, a freaky way to like look at people. <laughs> yes. I mean, it was freaky the first time I saw Avatar, just thinking about, like, becoming, like, inside of an Avatar's body, like, just, like, transporting your consciousness in there, and now it's, like, you're born with the memories of a human, but you're a completely different species. Really freaky. It is. It's crazy. Um, Yeah, I really love that part. I thought that was amazing. 
Um, but, you know, just like Skynet and just like the company in Aliens, the bad guys in Avatar can just keep trying over and over forever. And they will until they get what they came for. I feel like this totally raises the stakes. And it also gives Jake Sully that legend status, right? They're literally assembling entire hit squads of cloned avatars and sending them across the galaxy just to kill him. <laughs> Pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. All right, well, let's keep this thing going. Um, what is this movie saying? This movie takes a strong anti-centrist stance. Perhaps um, you would be more correct in saying this anti-pacifist, but I think the criticisms work well for either denomination. Um, the Tukin are a race of whale guys that refuse to fight. They believe that violence begets violence. So um, I agree with this, actually. Violence does beget violence. Revenge, for example, needs to be addressed in a justice system. There can't be long-running cycles of revenge if you want a stable community. However, I think you'd be naive to think violence is unavoidable. Violence will occur, either from inside or from outside. And there needs to be a line where you will strike back. If there is no other alternative in my mind, then violence is justified. And compromising with your enemy is not a reasonable alternative. For uh, I've made up this example as a compromise, perhaps. If the Tolkien attempted to strike a deal with the humans... And part of that deal was periodically a toucan would be sacrificed to the human so they could extract its brain juice. That's not a good deal. And although it's in the long term, perhaps there could be a symbiotic relationship where both parties thrive, sacrificing members of your own community for some nebulous treaty is the same as failure. And that's that's without even uh, like confronting this idea of immortality for humans. Oh, my God. Dude. That is like <laughs> that is opening up a whole can of worms. Yes, it is. But I'm glad that they didn't really really dive into that because it's too much. Have you ever watched um, Altered Carbon? No. On Netflix? That show deals with the concept of immortality in, I think, a really, really good way. And it's something that I don't think, um, if you're going to seriously confront this as a sci-fi idea, you would have to come up, you have to answer some of the questions that Altered Carbon like asks, which are basically... How do you make sure this is available for everyone and not just for some people? Because uh, I, there's this, oh my gosh, there's like this Scottish proverb or something. I don't even know what it is. I just I remember reading it in my uh, horrible histories book uh, about Scotland. It says, if life was something that money could buy, the poor would never live and the rich would never die. I've heard that. Yeah. And... Imagine if there was this sort of thing, right? But like that you could um, take some sort of pill or something and live forever. I do not see this going well for anyone. Um, <laughs> this could be really, really, really bad. And I think that it's not unreasonable to think that people at the top would create some sort of artificially scarce market where they would keep the price and the supply of this thing under top tight lock and key so that they could extract well wealth from everyone else um, for the expense of their lives. You know, uh, even if this thing was easy to make and didn't cost 80 million, you know, uh, dollars per, per liter, uh, I think that it would still be a scarce resource on earth just based, be, just because of the way that we have dealt with problems like this in the past. Look at how insulin is uh, not regulated in this country, and you will see how uh, you know, the uh, insanity that is um, the idea of immortality. And let's not even talk about the uh, idea of an infinitely 
long-living cult leader because that would be something else to 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 get on yes but- no it's it's such a bad idea it's called the post-mortal by drew mcgarry this was my like summer reading before my freshman year of college and uh this does a great job of imagining how twisted the world gets once people start becoming immortal because yes it is restricted to the people who can afford it but also the people who live for really long times so, like weird stuff happens to them um like they like they start to like worship themselves because they like see themselves as like an eternal God. Uh, and then there's like people who they get super old and they don't die, but they become like these like goblin looking people. Like they, they, it's not that they like get older, but it's just like this weird stuff happens to them, but they, and they don't die, uh, like of natural causes. So unless someone kills them, they just keep on going. Uh, it's really, uh, it's, it's just, it's a weird concept to think about. Yes, it is. I, I really like the post mortal. I think that's, that's a really good book. It makes me think a lot about how this would deal with how we would deal with this problem. My, the most potent lesson I remember from that book is that our main character um, doesn't live past the age of like eighty. He he has the shot. He doesn't age anymore. But because of like a nuclear holocaust that engulfs the earth, that's right. Because yeah, there's yeah. so many people, um, he doesn't even live outside of his normal lifespan. Um, so yeah, it's insane. Uh, that's. Yeah. Anyway, immortality aside. <laughs> yeah. Good thing they didn't address that concept or else this would be a much longer podcast. <laughs> Otherwise, we would, yeah, we'd be talking about it for so long. Um, when the Sky People come back to Pandora with the intention of taking whatever they can, if there is no resistance, right? If there is no violence against them, they will keep pushing and pushing until there is nothing left. It's called the tragedy of the commons. You know, we can, we can see this play out over human society over and over and over again. So maybe I'm reaching a little bit here, but to me, whenever someone takes up a centrist or pacifist stance, implicit in this idea is that other people are willing to work with you or are acting in good faith. You'll hear people say, both sides make good points, but that's just a heuristic so that you don't have to consider or listen to both sides. (laughs) Because I agree, because I beg to you that you would not agree with that if you actually listened to what they were saying. But and this is clearly not true. Pacifists will die out if they never defend themselves. You cannot inherently trust others to have your best interests at heart. If you don't advocate for yourself, no one else will. We've seen in Avatar that human society and the Navi societies are incompatible. The humans uh, consume endlessly with no regard to the common good, and the Navi exist in harmony with their environment, working with the plant for perfect balance. At this point in the Avatar series, it seems unlikely that a compromise will be possible. Only one can remain, and if one is willing to fight, the other must be willing to meet that fight. I think that this is, you know, a lesson we can all kind of take away, right? Centrism is one of those ideal, idealistic ideas, something that I think a lot of us, uh, when we first start thinking about these things, kind of gravitate toward uh, because it feels like the one that will get us in the least amount of trouble. But if you look at the stances on many issues, you will see that it is not a perfect balance one side is advocating for the extermination of certain types of people and other people are saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't do that. <laughs> if you look at the middle of that, you're still sacrificing people, right? You are compromising with evil and compromising with evil is the same thing as com- being complicit with it, at least in my opinion. So when you, when Jake is like, we need to run, we need to, to leave, right? And when the Tukun are saying, we can't fight because fighting will lead to the destruction of ourselves, all they are doing is 
uh, like uh, letting themselves be destroyed, right? They are offering no resistance to this this thing. We can we've seen in this movie, we've seen in both Avatar and Avatar Two that the Navi, when push comes to shove, can push back the humans uh, with a lot of casualties on the human side, right? They can make a difference on that, and if they didn't try, then they wouldn't be here, basically. I think another thing to kind of consider here is that um, the Navi in this movie uh, don't really have a good sense for what is happening to their planet, right? The humans are a different kind of species. They're an invasive species. They're not like, they don't work in harmony with Iwa. They don't care about that. Even if the earth was talking to them, they are not listening, right? So um, when they come to you, when, when the humans come to them and say, hey, uh, here's what we want to do, you can't assume that they have anybody's best interests except for their own at, in mind, right? And I think that's something that, that's a mistake that I think the Navi probably made in the past. And I think it's something that um, plays out in, uh, all over the time, all over the place, right? We, we're like, oh, it can't actually be that bad. It can't be, what they're proposing can't actually be what they mean, because that would be awful. But the, we've, atrocities happen every day. It's possible for those sort of things uh, to be true. So if you're not standing up for those, for yourself and for your community, uh, there's a chance there, that will be the last chance you get to do that. It's really, I think you, you mentioned this in our review of the first Avatar, but this, the, the world of Avatar feels like James Cameron, after he got done making Aliens, was like, what if we swapped it? <laughs> and right. now we actually like the aliens and the humans are the, like, the feared species. And I think Avatar 2 takes us even a step further because in the first one, they just show up and then they're there to uh, just be capitalism-pilled and, and mine your planet for resources, which they're taking a step further in this one in that now they're going to take over your planet and suck it dry in every aspect. Um, and similar to aliens, they will even go and inhabit the bodies of your species in order to accomplish their invasion. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's terrifying. Uh, it, when you try, when you picture it from the Navi's perspective that humans to them are like the aliens and alien <laughs> are to yes. us. Exactly, except that they have a you know humans have weapons that shoot from a distance and uh, <laughs> they'll lie to you to your face you know like it's <laughs> it's it, it's it's a little bit more terrifying. It's hard to conceptualize this kind of thing, but like it, like here they come. You know they're just they're they're always there. I think it's so interesting seeing the humans like colony and all the robots and stuff that look sort of like animals that are roaming around and even like the mech suits and everything that are that are working with them it's like the humans have created a ecosystem that is completely subservient to them right they have they have made they have bent the world to their will and made it do everything they want all these things moving around are all their slaves that do exactly what they're what they're told all the time without question and um Obviously, the Navi don't really have a concept for something like that because everything sort of works in concert. Uh, so it's it's certainly an alien idea to a society like this, and it's it's interesting to see this sort of thing play out. It was so starkly demonstrated for us when the humans first arrived on the planet, just completely going scorched Earth, uh, where they were setting up their initial base. I mean, yes. that was it. Reminded me of 
Terminator 2's nuke scene uh, when they were just blasting <laughs> oh, all of yeah. those it definitely looks animals. like that. The shock waves and everything. Yeah, just like the fire coming through and, and all those trees are destroyed. Even the really, really big ones are just knocked down because of the the force of the explosion. And then you don't even see the humans like being humans at first. The first thing you see of them is the, is the row of mech suits and the pyromaniacs <laughs> uh, yes. from T furniture two uh, out there burning <laughs> down the forest. Like it's um, it, it's, it feels like a very dystopian evil force that is arriving on Pandora. So um, one more thing I wanted to talk about was I feel like Avatar is making like a lot of connections to Christianity. So like Awa is kind of like a stand in for God uh, in that like Awa kind of connects with all living beings and has influence over things for her chosen people. But then in this movie, we go like a step further for like direct because you could be like, oh, that's any God. Right. Uh, but then it's like this movie, we literally have immaculate conception, which would make <laughs> Kiri like the, the Awa Jesus. Yes. Which I like, I obviously they're building towards something here. Like she did use her powers to be able to lead them out of the boat. But I think that there's something bigger planned for her in the future. That's really going to show the power of Awa. But uh, I, I'm honestly surprised that we didn't see somebody split the seas in this movie. But I guess oh they're gosh. probably saving Awa <laughs> Moses for the third movie. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, no, I think I think there are definitely like moments of um, spirit spirituality in this, and there's lots of things that this movie is saying about spirituality. Um, let me uh, actually play this quote from the first movie. Now the hostiles believe that this mountain stronghold of theirs is protected by their their deity and when we destroy it we will blast a crater in their racial memory so deep that they won't come within a thousand clicks of this place ever again and that too is a fact throughout the um first movie right we see and i think even in this one there are moments where our most capitalism-pilled guys, as you like to say, and our most you know ruthless uh, warmongers are snoffing or scoffing at the snoffing. Uh, they're snoffing sco- too. Snoffing and scoffing at <laughs> uh, at the concept of a religion, right? They're saying, "Oh, they believe in this god," not recognizing that Awa is a little bit more tangible, I think, than the Christian god. Uh, you know, there's direct influence there. That, but it's um, it's very interesting to see. Um, how the humans react to this concept, right? It's it's met, met with laughter. It's met with um, dis- easy dismissal, right? Uh, because our relationship with our religion has been trending toward that uh, the only god that matters is money. The only you know, the Almighty yeah. Dollar is the uh, uh, is the is the one true god. Or uh, perhaps uh, uh, in um, uh, to defeat the Almighty Dollar might be uh, God Emperor Trump. Um, but other than that, uh, we have, our pantheon is empty. Uh, the gods have left. Um, so to see a native culture that seems so, um, you know, undeveloped, uncivilized, uh, still believing in some sort of deity is something that I think the more sophisticated humans, um, of course would scoff at. I think that's certainly uh, an element here. I think that uh, structured morality uh, for the Navi certainly benefits them in their relationship with their environment. Um, so it's, um, I think it's certainly appealing to uh, 
uh, like an audience that feels some sort of connection to something and maybe uh, begging you to get in closer contact with that uh, and say, you know, what is it that we're doing? Uh, and are we ignoring uh, Mother Earth's pleas? Right. And I, and I think it's, it's interesting um, and I think uh, important that you showed the uh, separation from that spirituality and like the ruthless pursuit of capital. Uh, those things are at odds and, you know, actively push you one way or the other. So, um, yeah, I mean, further, uh, expands on the message from that I think was more strongly established in the first one. Um, like, I think this one is saying like, Hey, maybe humanity is just like eternally consuming versus, uh, you know, in the first, like, that's what this movie saying. And like in the first one, it was more like, Hey, look at how they'll do anything for money specifically. Uh, but they still have that. We had our guy who was like, this is the thing that pays for everything that we're doing here. Just like we had, uh, what's his name? Say that in the first one about unobtainium. That's yeah. right. Um, and yeah, something else that kind of branches off of this, uh, which we didn't really talk about from the first one is, uh, the role that science plays in the, perpetuation of capitalism, right? The knowledge that they have about these tukun are used to better their destruction, right? Um, they they know that they have this sort of thing in them. They know exactly where it is in the body. And so they use that, that, that research to um, perpetuate that. And I think that's not... It's sort of subtle in the first one. And this one, it's much more explicit. Um, but uh, the role that the scientists play is a important one in the success of this mining operation. Yep. Um, they are not really working at odds with each other. They are really one and the same. And um, I mean, we've seen the same thing in our real world. Silicon Valley certainly feels like the amalgamation of capitalism, um, but it's hiding behind some sort of strange sets of values uh, that it claims to be uh, hold independent to that. But that's not true. Uh, all For every... Um, call that we're going to revolutionize the world or change the world or make the world a better place, um, you see that all of those are empty promises just <laughs> to fill the uh, wallets of the people making them. Um, and yeah, so I, I think it's important to note that um, science can play a role either way. It's not necessarily in, contra in contrast with it. Despite the knowledge you may have, it's not enough to keep you from... Uh, committing atrocities agreed the first movie kind of gives you this like this is what science wants to do and this is what the military slash capitalists want to do but this movie is saying hey actually this com this uh scientist is complicit in what we're doing here even though he's like yeah the he's the very science unhappy about stuff, it yeah but, but he's but not enough to stop anything. Exactly, exactly. And I will say I don't condone the hunting of the uh the whales here, but the explanation of how they hunt them was badass. Like it was like horrific, but it was also like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> like they set, they got those uh, inflatable things that would like stick yeah. to them, and I don't know. It was it was, it was a cool sequence, even though it was, obviously it was, it was a tragedy. I think that that is supposed to like match up with the destruction of the home tree, but it really didn't have the same emotional resonance for me um, as as that one did. I I mean, when when home tree falls, right? There's so Every one of our characters is there, and I think this is really the difference between our two, our two things here, and why one of them worked for me really well and the other one didn't. In 
in the first Avatar, every one of our named characters is present while Home Tree is being destroyed, right? Even Trudy, she's there and, and you see her say, ah, this is too much Trudy, for me. Trudy, who's like, I can look past, uh, you know, killing the natives, <laughs> but I draw the line at knocking down a large tree. That's right. <laughs> Thank you, Britta. <laughs> Yes, uh, but then and then after that, the entire color palette changes. It's like gray and ash is falling from the sky, right? It's it's coded to be like it's nine eleven. Like it's it, every people are dying. The the Navi who are living there are all screaming and crying. They they are so upset. They first tie up Jake and Grace, and then they're so desperate they untie them. Like it's really bad. In this one, uh, the closest thing we have to the Navi being upset is uh, Jack Champion, <laughs> and it's simply not enough. <laughs> To sell me on this thing, you know, and even like Qualrich, right? In the first one, you see him in his helicopter, you know, he's sipping his drink and he's like, ah, good work, guys. And he's happy, which means, which tells you, the audience, that you should be unhappy if he's right. happy, right? And this one, he's like learning alongside. So he's like, ah, sounds good. But he's like sort of confused about what's happening as well. It's it's not as clear even to him that th what's happening is like a good thing for him, right? It's just sort of like curious. Well, right. So, and like the, the killing of any animals on Pandora, we know is like a tragedy at this point, right? Because right. Of the Navi are always kind of part of that community. Um, and it's like, you shouldn't just kill to just pull their brain juice out and then leave the carcass or whatever. Like there's all this like give and take kind of, you know, like we've saying, they live in concert. But the real tragedy from the death of that whale was that it was the best friend of our, like, the of queen. Kate Winslet. Yeah, yeah. Of Kate Winslet's character in the Water Tribe, that this is not just a whale, but, like, a sentient creature who's celebrating the birth of its, of its child. So that is the real emotional resonance. It's why isn't to she there? That. Why isn't she there to emote? Right. right to to why isn't she present to and then you know everyone else is holding her back and she's screaming and crying and vowing she's gonna they're gonna kill him right if you have that if you had the water tribe there while that thing while that event happened then it's like then it feels you, you feel something right you, you recognize this is really upsetting this is a bad thing and although like if you're paying attention you can uh, there's you know it's telling you what's going on you can recognize even the the whale the tukun and because it's carrying around a calf you know which one it's going to be but um it, even then it's it's not enough to really capture that feeling um so yeah all right well i think that's gonna complete our overall section so we'll move on to our cool easter eggs joey what you got i got so many um but i'll try and keep it short <laughs> um so according to vulture and i actually saw this reported several places even before the movie came out um, the 20th Century Fox and Disney that now owns 20th Century Fox, they didn't understand Cameron's vision for this movie. All the mighty Ican uh, riding and the runtime was too much for them. So he had to remind them that this was his house, the house that Jim built. He is quoted as saying, I just drew a line in the sand and said, you know what? I made Titanic. This building that we're meeting in right now, this new half a billion dollar complex in your lot, Titanic paid for that. So I get to do this. And afterward, they thanked me. <laughs> and then everybody clapped. And then a man <laughs> gave him $100. And that man's name was Albert was Albert Einstein. Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but well, this is just par for the course as far as James Cameron's outbursts. Apparently, he's he's mellowed in his old age, but he had to pull it out one last time in order to uh, get the uh, the approval he needed um, for this movie. Well, and yeah, we talked about it on our episode about Avatar, but like just from a financial standpoint, 
the totality of James Cameron's success cannot be overstated. Like this yes. guy prints money. <laughs> it's amazing. It really is amazing. Um, uh, apparently, uh, during the first Avatar uh, shoot, he was wearing James Cameron was wearing a hat that said H M I H M F I C. Uh, which he retired for this movie. This is proof that he's mellowed. The the H M F I C stands for Head Motherfucker in Charge. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that is very cool. Very it's badass. Very, no, it's definitely, uh, definitely does not scream me- megalomania. <laughs> <laughs> um, in a in a in a uh, interview with Cameron, uh, they asked him about um avatar and its major breakthrough for 3d movies uh if you know anything about the history of 3d movies you know that 3d has been tried over and over and over again and has failed every single time and right after avatar came out they started making 3d tvs and were like hey people want don't you want 3d in their house and nobody bought any <laughs> so um so they asked him what do you think what do you make of what happened to the format in the years after avatar and he said i think the studios blew it just to save 20% of the authoring costs in the 3D, they went with 3D post-conversion, which takes it out of the hands of the filmmaker on the set and puts it in some post-production process that yields a poor result. I do not think the new Avatar film will rekindle an... Uh, no, sorry. I do think that the new Avatar film will rekindle an interest in natively authored 3D, which is what I personally believe is the right way to do it. I say either do 3D or don't do 3D, but don't try to slap it in afterward to get the upcharge on the ticket. So uh, this is interesting, like uh, from the industry standpoint, where there's a right way and wrong way to do this. You can either do it in post-production or you can film in 3D. Um, so interesting little tidbit here uh something that uh may convince me to watch this in 3d next time uh just because uh he's such a purist yeah i'd like to try it again at some point but yeah i think three hours is a bit long for a, a trial run of anything uh but i, I don't want to wear somebody else's glasses in my face for three hours <laughs> i mean i do remember watching spy kids 3d in the theater and Same. being amazed when the characters were like it's over there and, and they poked like you point in the eye. right at the camera <laughs> yeah yes but that was that was red and blue wasn't it it was that was the red it and was, blue 3d yes that was before they had the um isometric uh lenses yeah 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 um, well so. i i remember using the spy kids 3d glasses on minecraft because minecraft had like a in the settings you could change it to be 3d <laughs> yes that's right <laughs> Just in my room going blind playing Minecraft for hours. (laughs) Spy Kids 3D glasses. As is the tradition of our generation. (laughs) (laughs) So um, let's talk a little bit about the um, box office for this movie. So to his point, uh, this is from Variety, Cameron's biggest films, Avatar and Titanic, started slower at the box office and built huge audiences over time. The first Avatar opened with a decent but hardly dazzling 77 million domestically more than a decade ago. So um, they contrast this to the Marvel movies, which have steep drop-offs after the second week, first after the first week. Um, There's a guy on YouTube who I've mentioned a couple times, Dan Merle. He makes a show called Charting with Dan or Charts with Dan, something like that, where he talks about the box office numbers. Fascinating show. It's so interesting to to talk about the numbers and the story behind the numbers. And he often talks about the drop off from one week to the next anything that is a uh, less than i think 50 percent is considered a pretty good success so if your movie made 50 percent less 
the second weekend, that's pretty good. And like, so there's some movies that uh, like word of mouth will carry it far into the future and some movies that the opposite will happen and there'll be like an 80 or 90% drop off. People will see it the first weekend and then nobody will see it after that. Um, this, so what we're, what he's expecting and Cameron has other films that point to this is that it will, uh, have a middling first weekend, but then continue onward for a while. And actually there's some evidence for this timing looks like it'll be in the famous film's favor. There's almost zero competition throughout the rest of the year. And the upcoming Christmas season is usually the busiest time to go to the multiplex. I'm sure everyone remembers that, that, uh, in 2009, that's the Christmas time was when Avatar came out as well. So, and everyone saw it. I remember coming back from Christmas break and we were supposed to write an essay in English class about what we did over Christmas break and every single person wrote that they watched Avatar. <laughs> and my and my teacher was going crazy. She's like, why did everyone see this movie? And we're all like, I don't know. <laughs> but um, anyway. I mean, I'm having that I, fe- yeah. like a feeling now. I, I, I've talked to people just you know over the weekend and more people than I can remember in a long time went and saw this movie. Honestly, since the last, I don't know, maybe... Spider-Man may have been the last time I knew this many people who are going to go see a movie opening weekend. So yeah, it is a big deal. So Titanic as well uh, had a twenty-eight million dollar debut debut in nineteen ninety-seven. Um, so Titanic had twenty-eight million, and then it became the highest-grossing movie ever uh, when it came out. Cross the first movie to ever cross one billion dollars, um, and then Avatar uh, actually ended up breaking that record um, with a. But it also started off with seventy-seven million. Uh, Avatar two. It started off with 158 million, 450 million uh, internationally. Um, the so it's on track to becoming one of the biggest movies of all time. It has to be one of the biggest movies of all time in order to make its money back, <laughs> which is so amazing. I I want people to see it just for that, just because that's such an amazing thing for it to do. like just for James Cameron to be like, I don't care about making money. I'm going to spend all the money. <laughs> But um, uh, the, the, there is one wrinkle to this. Uh, there's one reason why um, Avatar may not succeed at the box office, and that is, of course, China. Uh, China, folks. Uh, <laughs> China only made only $57 million were made in China over the opening weekend, uh, which is falling short from what the projections were. But with continuing um, lockdowns in China, um, and this movie is not being shown in Russia at all, uh, that may uh, contribute to maybe not quite hitting the mark uh, for this movie. So we'll see. Wow. All right. So I have a few Easter eggs for you. Um, one, this is actually something that my girlfriend mentioned when we were walking out of the theater and then I went and looked it up, but the Metkayina clan, which is the water tribe is known to be inspired by the Maori people of earth, more specifically, you know, New Zealand, uh, with actors, uh, Maori actors from the cast of Avatar sequels working with James Cameron to incorporate elements of indigenous New Zealand cultures into the clan's customs and traditions. Uh, notably, Cliff Curtis and James Cameron worked together to adapt a traditional Hakka dance into a Navi-inspired dance for the clan to perform, incorporating tail and ear movement. The wow. tattoos of the clan also resemble traditional Maori tattoos in placement style. And another thing uh, that Liesl told me was that, uh, like, you know, you know how the Navi of the, like, jungle hiss? kind of like a cat almost. And then we saw the water tribe 
Navi stick their tongue out. That was that's something that is like traditional to Maori people, apparently. Interesting. So they definitely drew a lot from you know another indigenous culture, uh, kind of like they did with the uh, Omatakaya uh, in the first one. So uh, yeah, pretty cool. And again, it's like as as long as it's being done responsibly, as long as the cultures at, like the, in question are having an influence on how they're portrayed on the screen. I, I guess that's cool. Again, I don't think that's my call to make, but I do think it's kind of cool. Another kind of uh, incorporation of something from uh, indigenous cultures. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's sort of an amalgamation, right? I mean, the word avatar is a Hindi word, I believe, which means rebirth. So it's there's a lot of different um, cultures that are sort of wrapped up in um, in these you know, indigenous alien indigenous people (laughs) uh so another thing james cameron said that he's prepared to end the avatar series after the third film if avatar the way of water isn't profitable he was quoted saying the the question is how many people give a shit now which i think is an interesting quote i got this from imdb um, but i thought for sure they already greenlit the second third and fourth movie I'm not sure. I'm not sure how that, and I'm not even sure how that works. I do know he's filmed most of the third one, and he said that he wants all of the special effects to be done before he edits it. Wow. <laughs> that sounds like an expensive way to make your movie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he's like, what's the most expensive way I can do this? Um, so he's filmed most of the fourth one, which has uh, Michelle Yao apparently is starring in the, oh. in the, in the third one. And, um, and I think the fourth one, he said most of it is filmed or something. So um, uh, they're all being done at the same time, as apparently. Right. And that, that I read that as well, that the, similar to uh, L- Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, these movies are all being filmed back to back, which I think is a really cool way to make a movie. Obviously, to say that it's similar to Lord of the Rings in any capacity is a really, really tough like measuring stick because Lord of the Rings is so freaking amazing. But I think as an example of uh, you know multiple sequels lord of the rings does it right so uh, hopefully that helps to make a more cohesive uh, movie because i do think that there will be aspects of this movie that could retroactively be seen in a, in a like a brighter light because of what happens next it's possible that things that we see come to fruition later on could retroactively make us feel different about this movie so we'll have to see what happens uh but i do think filming it this way is a good sign at least that we're potentially in for something that you know runs together well it probably won't be as bad as the star wars sequels yes <laughs> yes <laughs> low bar but definitely uh yeah hopefully better all right that's all my cool easter eggs joey okay i've got a quote not from the movie but from our beloved director jim cameron and i'll have benjamin read it for you i also want to do the thing that other people aren't doing when i look at these big spectacular films i'm looking at you marvel and dc it doesn't matter how old the characters are they all act like they're in college they have relationships but they really don't they never hang up their spurs because of their kids the things that really ground us and give us power love and a purpose those characters don't experience it and i think that's not the way to make movies so here he's talking about the reason why 
I think Jake has changed from Avatar 1 to Avatar 2, right? He's grown up. He's a different person now. He's no longer that fresh-faced Marine who just lost the, the ability to use his legs. Now he is a father and the father of teenagers as well. He's been living here for years. He feels responsible for them and for his community. Um, so I think it's interesting to see him uh, take a shot at Marvel here in their character development, saying that they don't seem to grow. They're always too quippy. But so, uh, I do think um, putting it in this way definitely puts that into relief. It definitely seems like a lot of those characters are very much of a similar age or of a similar like mindset. Um, but uh, I kind of characterize that as being too cool for the movie that they're in. Um, whereas, you know, Avatar is very earnest. Um, both of these are. What do you make of this? I think it really tracks with the way that James Cameron makes movies. It's clear that he has a lot to say about family dynamics and values kind of focusing on the relationship between parents and children. So, um, and I do think that that makes, <laughs> it's, it's honestly uh, amazing the way that he's able to humanize non-humans <laughs> with this, uh, this, this parental relationship. We had the Terminator being a good dad. We had the, uh, the alien being a, a really impressive mom. <laughs> but, uh, well, Rip, Ripley and Newt, right? <laughs> right, right. As like a Ripley, surrogate uh, mother. Yeah. Adopting Newt in that terrible situation. Right. And then now we get to see like a whole family together, even though they're not humans, they're Navi, we get to still experience that di dynamic. So, I, I mean, I think it's something that uh, James Cameron is really well versed in and, and effective at portraying on the screen. I just read, uh, finished reading Blake Snyder's um, Save, Save the Cat, which is a book about screenwriting. And one of the things he says over and over again is that your story has to be primal. It has to evoke the same feelings that we've been feeling for generations and years and years. He says, the movie must appeal to a caveman. And I interpret that not as like your audience is dumb <laughs> like a caveman, but that uh, your, your story has to appeal to them because they have to be even if you were taken out of time, you would still recognize the dynamic that was at play. And I think that's something that Cameron does uh, explicitly very well. Uh, in all of those movies, all these movies we've watched, right, it's always been about that the connection between people and um, how they endure incredible circumstances. Um, and even though crazy stuff is happening all around, it's always grounded in something that all of us can recognize. Um, so... Yeah, I, again, uh, he's done it again. He's a master. Yep, and it's, his movies age incredibly well. So, I, you know, and I think... Not by, just at the box office, too. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, so it's, I mean, there's a lot to that. Okay, Joey, I think you know what time it is. It's time for us to go a little deeper. deeper, deeper. So I want to do a little bit of um, speculation here. After the first Avatar came out, Something came to light. There were many articles written about it. Uh, people called it PAD, post-Avatar depression, <laughs> where after they saw Avatar, they were so transfixed by the world of Pandora that they wanted to go there. And when they couldn't go there, many of them uh, contemplated suicide. Many of them were uh, af like afraid of living their normal life because they felt like it was so empty. Uh, and that the only way they could ever fulfill their lives would be to be reborn as avatars on Pandora. Um, I 
personally feel like I had a, a sense of that after I watched Avatar the first time in theaters. I was like, it was stuck in my head. I could not stop thinking about it. I kept wanting to go there and, and know what it was like. And uh, it wasn't until I, I sort of got into, I think I was watching something really funny on TV that I sort of snapped out of it. It was like, <laughs> it was like something that was like consuming me and I, I didn't understand what was happening. I just kept like returning to it in my mind. And so I definitely had a, a sense of what this was like. Um, so I, I definitely empathize a lot with the people that, that feel this way. But uh, over time, right, uh, a lot of people that, that uh, exp- like, you know, expressed this found each other on forums. Um, there's even a story of a person finding his wife on the Avatar forums. Um, and sometimes they meet up to have, you know, little meet, uh, like conventions and stuff. But mostly it's just to keep track of each other. May uh, you know uh, have a good time and you know meet up with like-minded people. Um, there's actually a little bit of that dedicated uh, to it. There's a little bit dedicated to that in uh, John Wilson's How To series on HBO, um, which is a really great documentary series that I recommend. He finds an Avatar convention with like nine people. They're all wearing their Avatar shirts, and uh, some of them actually speak Navi. <laughs> it's ridiculous, <laughs> but um, it's such like a, a wholesome thing that uh, has kind of spurred from it. And they interviewed some of the people, asking them if they were excited for this movie, and they said that oh, it's just kind of another movie for me. I'm not really sure what to expect. Um, so what do you think? Do you think there will be a new generation of uh, post-Avatar depression after um, Way of Water comes out? Or do you think the, uh, the spell has been broken and uh, this will no longer happen? That is a really good question. Um, I think it's really difficult to get lightning to strike twice. Uh, you know, Avatar came out in like this cultural moment that I feel like everybody experienced. So I'm tempted to say no. Uh, especially because we, we live in such a different media climate now where yep. people are like sucked into like their niche entertainment sources that uh, don't even have to be full length movies. They can be your favorite YouTuber, your favorite TikTok, or whatever other you know media source that you have. So I guess if I had to choose, I would say no. I don't think this is going to be as big of a like cultural moment uh, but we'll have to see i mean the magic of pandora is still definitely there so i could see people wanting to are being tempted to feel that same way uh that they want to this time they want to just be able to stay underwater for seven and a half minutes uh, <laughs> instead of <laughs> breathe the toxic air on pandora <laughs> i do i do foresee an uptick in uh you know swimming lessons for children ah. i think kids are gonna want to swim after this one <laughs> <laughs> safe bet i think <laughs> uh okay well that is going to bring us to the end of our uh, highly anticipated uh you know a- end to our james cameron series we knew avatar 2s was coming out so we went on a a little bit of an odyssey watching all these James Cameron films. And I'm, I'm really happy we did. What a way to finish off the year for Affable Chat. Um, I, really, I really enjoyed these James Cameron films. Absolutely. This was a lot of fun. Um, I only wish we had done Titanic, but maybe we'll do it next year. Um, it's going to be... Uh, it's so nice watching all these movies back to back. I think there's so much that uh, is played into each of these. It really does feel like each one of them um, kind of built on the other and getting to see James Cameron's signature style um, and seeing some of his tropes kind of come together uh, is pretty inspiring. And it, it certainly makes me want to return to the movies and look forward to what's coming next. Okay. So 
before we end this episode, we'll do what we do at the end of every episode of Apple Chat, which is we'll deliver our ratings. So, Joey, what rating do you want to give to Avatar The Way of Water? I give this movie uh, a copy swallowed by a whale. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of similar to my rating. I give this movie two whale flippers way, way up. Nice. Very nice. Um, so, Joey, what is next on Apple Chat? Well, I'm not sure, but we will see you next year in 2023. That's right. We're done for the year. This is it. We'll see you next year with more podcasts. Our podcast is turning five next year. That's right. So we're, uh, we're going to keep this thing going. Affable chat. Half a decade. Sending it to kindergarten. In the books. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah, we're really excited about that. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. AppleChat.com is your new favorite website on the internet. That's where you can find the latest from us and all our social media accounts, including Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, all of which are at AppleChat, and even our email address, AppleChat at gmail.com. If you like this episode, then tell a friend about it. All you have to say is, have you considered listening to Affable Chat? Affable Chat is live on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Twitch. That's twitch.tv slash Affable Chat. That's going to do it for this episode for Affable Chat and for the rest of 2022. I'm Benjamin. And I'm Joey. Thanks for listening.